0: Welcome to the Democracy Group. I'm Brandon Stover, Network Manager for the Democracy Group. And today's featured episode is from our show, The Bully Pulpit, produced by the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. If you'd like to learn more about USC or hear more from the Bully Pulpit, head on over to dornsifecenterforpoliticalfuture.usc.edu. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations.
1: Welcome to uh, Trojan Family Weekend, to our podcast, The Bully Pulpit, which we will use this event for as well. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warshaw Professor and the Director of the Center for the Political Future. I'm the Democrat who's dressed like a Republican. My, my co-director, uh, Mike Murphy, uh, is the Republican who's dressed like a Democrat, and we're going to talk about, for about half an hour, about where President Biden is, uh, what's going to happen in the midterms. And we might touch on what happens beyond that. And then we're going to open this up to questions from you. So I'll start off by giving Mike the first crack at this. Where are we?
0: Well, crazy times demand crazy politics, I think, is, is where we are. First of all, welcome. It's great to see you. Sorry I keep saluting. It's just they've got the Vegas lights turned on here. So I'm blinded. I should have brought my sequins. But it's wonderful to see you all here today. We're going to have fun in this discussion, also talk a little bit about what we do at the center. So where are we? Bob asked the question. First of all, we're in what is called by political hacks, a wrong track election. That's where a majority or supermajority of people, when you ask them on a poll, do you think things are going in the right direction or they've gotten pretty seriously off on the wrong track? Over 60%, 65, are saying wrong track. That means I'm mad at politics, I'm mad at politicians, throw the bums out, I don't trust the system, everything's broken, I'm unhappy. And in those elections, generally, atypical candidates do well. I'll show those politicians, where send them Arnold Schwarzenegger, or John Fetterman, or whoever it may be. Uh, there's fertile ground for that, and there's also fertile ground for third parties. You know, they're both bad, we're going to do it with the, uh, the new left-handed party, or whatever. And there there tends to be kind of a high temperature of the language. What's interesting is normally we oscillate between right and wrong track elections kind of with the economic cycle. We've had more than a decade of wrong track. Just how mad are they? Mad, furious, irate. That's been kind of the range. And so we're in one of those elections. Uh, To Biden, I'll just start and Bob will, we may agree on some things, probably disagree on others. How's Biden doing? Well, you got to pick a yardstick. On one hand, he's gotten more big bipartisan things that are important done, a decent gun bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, it looks like the Electoral College Reform Act, which is vital. Probably talk about that the more. The chips bill. Chips bill, the, the semiconductor bill. I mean, he, he, it's hard. You have to go back decades to find anybody else who can say that. Politically, he ain't doing so great. Now, since World War II, In the off-year midterm election of a new president, the average is the party in power loses 26 seats. In three of the last four elections, they've lost 50. So you combine that kind of historical wave, whether it's red or blue, that can change. Voters tend to hit the red button in these midterms to punish the president. Seven of the last eight elections, the party in power has been punished at the polls. You add to that record inflation, Gasoline out here on the West Coast are charging mini-bar prices now for a gallon of gas, and uh, you know price of groceries, uh, the mortgages are zooming up. All those things are bad for whoever the voters perceive to be the top dog in charge. That's the President of the United States. That's Joe Biden. Biden's own numbers have been terrible. His approval, unapproval, they've gone up, but they've gone from terrible, hated, wanted poster to just the same old bad that presidents who get their clock cleaned in the midterms have. So hard to find a lot of good news for him politically right now. The only good news, and I'll turn it over to Bob because he, he's got 40 minutes on this, is particularly in the Senate races, my beloved Republicans have nominated some cinder blocks uh, dressed up in nice suits as candidates. And so we're going to have the ultimate test. Will the mid-year wave be big enough to lift up some anvils and put them in the Senate? And I think it
1: may Bob. First thing I'll say is uh, uh, Herschel Walker may be a cinder block, but I have yet to notice a nice suit. Uh, uh, And I think he is one of the reasons Democrats may keep control of the Senate. I want to step back because I agree with Mike about the general analysis here. I think we're a little bit like we've entered the period before the election when it's like the space capsule entering the atmosphere. And, And, We don't exactly know what's going on. You get polls one week that say Democrats are gaining. You get polls the next week that say Republicans are gaining. Uh, There have been really three times when the out-of-power party in the last century has done well in a midterm. 1934, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. 1962, which is not often cited because the Democrats lost three seats in the House, but they gained four seats in the Senate. But that was right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. and 2002 which was in the wake of 9-11. And that's the kind of election or kind of outcome Democrats would hope for. The issue that I think has energized a lot of Democrats and may change the electoral landscape, although I'm not sure of this, is the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade. I'm actually skeptical even of likely voter models in the polling now, because I think there are going to be people who otherwise might not have voted and won't have the record that would get them into the polls who may vote in this election. That's what the Democrats are hoping for. Pushing on the other side, Mike is right about this, is inflation, gas prices. You know, the truth of the matter is that this is actually a worldwide phenomenon. It's a global problem, not an American problem. But Herbert Hoover road-tested that argument in 1932, and it didn't work very well. He got me. People expect the president of the United States to be in charge and to fix these problems. So I think it would be very tough for Democrats to hold the House. I think it's very possible that they'll hold the Senate because of what Mitch McConnell has complained about, the quality of Republican candidates or the people Mike calls the cinder blocks. Biden, in a way, for me, is a little bit like Truman, who, got, who had terrible approval ratings when he left office and is now thought to be a near-great or maybe even a great president. He has had more legislative success than anyone since Lyndon Johnson, but I think the country is so polarized, the mood is so sour, that he doesn't get all the credit he would otherwise get for that. So I think you should watch the next few weeks with either great interest or great trepidation. You will see an amazing amount of negative advertising. I mean, I can remember in 1986, when I was doing Alan Cranston's reelection campaign in California, and I think we spent like $10 million, and Ed Schau spent like $11 million, and all the newspapers wrote stories about how this was the most expensive, outrageously expensive Senate race. Today, that would be a House race. I mean, the amount of money that's pouring in and the amount of information that you're, that you're going to see is absolutely astounding. So I am... I think history will be kinder to Biden than the polls, maybe, or than the, the 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 voters, maybe, this November. I think there's some chance, maybe 25%, that Democrats keep the House, and I think north of 50% that they keep the Senate. What will that mean? It will mean, and this would actually, in my view, be bad for the Republicans, because I went through this with Bill Clinton in the late 1990s, Jim Jordan, and a lot of Kevin McCarthy's. Members of his caucus want to just investigate Biden. Someone said the other day, well, we're going to impeach him. And they were asked for what? And he said, well, we'll get to that. Uh, And I think voters will rebel against that if it happens as they rebelled against that with Bill Clinton. And in 1998, Democrats actually gained seats in the House, which is really unprecedented in the sixth year of a president's term. So anyway, that's my view of, of, of where we are. Mike, you want to talk about these uh, cinder block candidates?
0: Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, it's funny. That impeachment thing reminds me of the old Soviet joke. You're going, comrades, you're going to have a fair trial and then you will be shot. It'll be good for Biden if they impeach him because it'll be the one bit of unifying news in the party. Well, most of the dialogue will be about oh, this guy's a loser. He's told we got to get a new candidate, which is never helpful. I'll go through some cinder blocks. But first, I just want to frame this thing in a a way that I, I think is a good way to look at it this midterm. You have the traditional argument, which is all the data I went through, inflation, historical trends, lousy approval numbers, all that stuff. The question is, the eternal question, is it different this time? And the problem is it's different this time thing always has a little extra attention because if you're a political reporter, Oh, I'm going to spend this year sitting at home because it's the same old stuff. Midterm party in power is going to lose. No, that's no fun. So you go out and you find a lot of reasons. It's different this time. And you look at every election, every midterm, there's a lot of it's different this time. One party has a new widget. They're using helicopters. Oh, it's the internet. This time, they got that funny ad with the dog. They've got a song. They were just endorsed by some, there's always a reason why it's different this time. And then most of the time, other than the three times bobsided, it's not different. But so we're in one of those bubbles now. The question is, there's a stronger than usual case right now that it is different. Dobbs, overturning Roe v. Wade. Biggest problem the Democrats have is getting younger voters to show up in the off year. Off year election generally has about a third fewer voters, give or take, than a presidential election where anybody who's interested in voting tends to vote. So will young voters who tend to be more pro-choice turn out? Activated? Will they do an unnatural thing for them, which they haven't done in most past elections? Show up in the midterm? Maybe. Media gets it a little wrong. You know who the most pro choice cohort in the polling is? Young men, who are also the hardest to turn out. So could that put a thumb on the scale? It could. Will it? We're going to find out. There's anecdotal evidence. You look at college uh, turnout in the New York 19 Hudson Valley special election we just had, where the Democrat won. The turned out in the college towns was abnormally high. Hmm, that could be a, a canary clunk falling, you know, in the coal mine for the Republicans. But we won't know till we do. The other thing that's different is the cinder block issue and Donald Trump, who's anthrax in a general election for the Republicans, because he scares away the suburb. He scares away well-educated kind of secret Republican independents who economically are Republican, but are kind of horrified by, excuse me, the Trump stuff. And what, what the Republican generals will tell you behind the scenes is Trump's gotten worse. Old Trump would have been out there screaming about gas prices and grocery and you're not going to be able to afford Thanksgiving and all his normal stuff, which has some traction out there in voter world, including among working class Democrats who feel a little alienated by the party. Trump we have now just wants to mutter about they stole the election. There are secret radio voices inside my head. You know, and it's like, it's not what the Trump enablers call good Trump. So, and he's going to force himself in the middle of this. And then you've got all the legal stuff. So what happened? Well, in a normal year, we would have nominated, we Republicans, I'm, I'm still hanging on barely. We would have nominated a bunch of nice, square, boring, regular Republicans. and We'd probably be cleaning the clock in the midterms, particularly in the Senate. The House is a little more wave oriented. Although with all the redistricting, we only have about 25 to 30 swing seats left. We used to have 70 or 80. So even a big wave can't give you as many seats. But in the Senate, you get more famous. People know who Dr. Oz is or John Fetterman or Marco Rubio. So in some of the most important states, Pennsylvania, where we ran one of those kind of regular business Republicans who narrowly lost the primary to Dr. Oz with some help from Trump. We don't have our, as Mitch McConnell would say, not our strongest, you know, with some what what was his phrase, challenging candidates. Well, that's true. Oz essentially lives in New Jersey and sells iffy vitamins online. You know, not a great pitch. Then you got Fetterman, who is it kind of Bernie Sanders and Hulk Hogan were in some kind of weird lab experiment. You get a six foot six socialist who doesn't look like a typical politician, which helps him this year. Back to that, I hate politics, blow it up, send somebody like that. And Fetterman is a good communicator in some ways because he's so atypical. So that's given the Democrats kind of an early advantage in Pennsylvania. You roll into Arizona, where Mark Kelly was a pretty strong candidate to begin with, but in a real, can go back and forth state, Blake Masters, who was nominated, has proven to be an awful candidate. J.D. Vance in Ohio, who I know, he called me four years ago talking about how we bring down Trump. Now he's got the red hat, the red suit the whole deal. He's had a conversion, lousy candidate, in some trouble in a state he should walk into. And then finally, the race that nobody pays attention to that might really decide, well, there's Georgia. We all know about Herschel Walker. He's all over the papers. Uh, He brilliantly managed to move the Chinese cloud controversy aside by trying to take down the abortion industry from inside, apparently going undercover. We'll see if that plays And actually, it's fun to joke about, but I think there's still a good chance he'll win because it's a wave election. And you got to remember, if you're a pro-life voter, you're like, oh, Herschel's lying to me. But I know when he gets there, they're surrounding with staff and he'll vote right. I never think Ralph Warnick will vote the pro-life side. So I'll hold my nose and take him just like we did Trump. So I don't think it'll cost him a lot of pro-life support. The question is the suburbs, where he's just becoming so embarrassingly unfit for office that maybe after they're done voting for Governor Kemp, the Republican who's significantly ahead, they are just skip the Senate race. And that would be good for Warnock. There is a delta in the polling now. Governor Kemp, Republicans doing, depending on the poll, you believe five to eight points better than Herschel Walker is. So that's a big chunk of vote that likes a Republican governor, but is looking at Herschel thinking maybe not. I I joked on TV last night that if I work, the debate is going to be big in Georgia because he's going to be on their TV and we're going to hear about Chinese clouds and everything. And if I were the campaign manager, Herschel Walker, I would pack the back of the studio of somebody to throw a tight spiral at him every time he gets a bad question and remind people why they love him. And a footnote on that, and I learned this, I ran Schwarzenegger's campaign here, who's a hell of a lot smarter and more patriotic than, than I think and more prepared than Herschel was. I don't know about more patriotic. That's kind of a judgment call. But he was sure ready to be. He put himself through a process to be ready to be governor. But when you, in a wrong track election, when people want to punish the political system and you are wildly credentialed in something else, sports, movie star, successful businessman, you know, something that people respect that's not military, that's not politics, they give you a lot of room, a lot of room. I remember doing Arnold, the Democrats put out the news in the general that, okay, we've had it with this guy, we're going to wipe him out, we're going to drop the A-bomb on him. You know, look out. Now you made us mad. And the A bomb was wait for it. Dianne Feinstein is going to make a TV ad. Ooh, most powerful Democrat in California, but respected by all. So they did the Kim Jong il spot with the big armchair and Diane looking at the camera. People of California, you will not vote for. Her. And it, we went up three points because whenever the political system says this blow it all up, Fetterman or Herschel Walker is a disaster in an election like this, yeah, they're like, I knew, I knew they hated him click so we're seeing then finally nevada where senator cortez masto has been in trouble a long time but that state is as pro-choice as california very pro-choice state i thought she would use that to get ahead with adam laxalt big political name there the republican tied race so you know we we have i think laxalt is probably the strongest of all those key candidates, but that's a harder state in theory. It'll be the Latino vote there that decides. So bottom line, in a wave election, the question is, can subpar candidates still win? They have in the past, but the level of subpar now, as Bob is about to kind of underline, I think, is pretty damn high.
1: Yeah, uh, wave elections do occur in this country. There's a great story about a guy who was running for New York State Assembly in, I think, the late 30s or 1940. And there were no signs. There was no visible campaign. There was nothing going on. He went to Ed Flynn, who was the boss of the Bronx. And he said, what are you doing to me? You gave me the nomination. Now you're not doing anything for me. I'm going to lose. And Ed Flynn took him and said, let's take a walk. And they went down to the waterfront. He said, see that big ship that's coming in? He said, yeah. He said, see that tugboat behind it? And he said, yeah. He said, see that garbage that's in the wake of the tugboat? He said, Franklin Roosevelt is your tugboat and you are going to win. So if it's a wave election, if that's what happens, then I think Republicans get the Senate and the House. I don't want to belabor this because we've talked about it a lot. I do think I have a suspicion that at the end of the day, most of these Senate races are going to go one way or the other. They're going to be close. But this happened in 2006. I mean, I was sitting on the set at at MSNBC and we were talking about what was happening. And, and, you know, people like Pat Buchanan were saying, well, Republicans are going to hold on because we've got to win one of these races. I said, no, actually, I think there's a good chance the way this the way this looks to me, that one party or the other is going to win most of these races. And that's what happened with Democrats that year. So we don't know. One other thing that I should add, because it is beginning to show up in the polling data. The the whole notion that we live in a time that threatens democracy has become a more important issue for people. It's moved up in the scale of issues that they care about or that we're going to help them decide the election. But you got to be careful about that, too, because some of the Trump people are going to say there's a threat to democracy. The election was stolen from Donald Trump, which to me, by the way, is somebody loses by eight million votes and loses by that margin in the electoral college takes a lot of nerve to say the election was stolen. I mean, I did the Gore campaign. We kind of had a case we could have made. Al Gore wouldn't do it because he thought it would tear the system and tear democracy apart, for which I give him a lot of credit. So I think we could go on and on about this, but that's where we are. One other thing I think I should add is what happens here in California in a lot of these competitive congressional races could have a big impact on the outcome. Because we have a lot of potentially very close yep. elections in northern Los Angeles County, in Orange County, down in the desert where there's a guy named Will Rollins running against a longtime Republican conservative who I think has suddenly had a conversion to being at least semi-pro-choice because well, he's it, worrying. David Valdeo? No, no, Ken. Oh,
0: okay, Calvert. Yeah, Ken yeah. Calvert. Yeah, no, I agree with that. There are a lot of conversions going on. I mean, it's not a one party thing. Most politicians are entrepreneurs chasing voters. And the problem is you chase the primary voters one way, and then you got to do a next snapping turn to the general election as the primary electors have gotten more radicalized. But no, you're right. It'll be very big what happens here. And just to make it more irritating and not only here. So years ago, California ironically from the Republicans, invented the idea of, a, of, in the old days, to get an absentee ballot, you basically had to write a five-page letter, get a note from your doctor, pictures of the broken bone. It was very difficult. Now it's a lot easier, what's called no-excuse absentee ballot voting. And California invented this idea of permanent absentee ballots. You fill out a postcard and they mail you a ballot. I've been one for years here. You vote by mail, everything's good. Then COVID came. And a lot of states, including California, said, you know what? We don't want to spread COVID at the polls, but we want people to vote. So we're going to mail everybody an absentee ballot. And it worked okay. There wasn't a lot of fraud. There never really is in American elections anymore. And then when COVID started to decline, a lot of states said, why don't we keep the mail everybody a ballot thing? And my personal theory is it is going to get a little bumpier in the fraud department. I like the California system where you write a simple postcard, boom, you're on the list. It's done. And, you know, they. you will go to an apartment building and see eight extra ballots, but they do match it when the votes come in, and that's how they get the dupes out. So it's kind of the least of our Democratic problems now. But it makes counting the vote a lot harder because the same crack enterprise that runs the DMV, that mentality is going to be counting the votes. Now, I have a feeling if Amazon was in charge, we'd have a 24-hour vote count. But because some ballots get stuck in the post office, another monopoly, It takes a while for them to get in. So it can show up four days after the election in the mail because Larry's truck broke and he forgot to get the mail to the sorting center on Saturday before the election doesn't get there till Friday. So there's a week lag in counting. What I'm getting at, and it's a close race, you don't get to know at 11 p.m. on election night anymore. So election day is three weeks long. In California, we start getting our ballots next week. For mail in. A lot of people hold them to the end because they want to watch the show and then vote. But, you know, it, it, anything close, the post election thing can be two weeks long. The other thing, just to make it more fun, if Georgia is the fulcrum race, and I'm with Bob, I think he's totally right about this. You could very well, Laxalt could win in Nevada, which means Herschel probably wins, Oz, you know, it, it, it could be a couple. But Georgia has a law. If you don't get to 50, there's a runoff in early January. That's what happened last time. So we could have a week after the election, the Senate still not decided because Georgia's going to vote again. And then we have a big national proxy war with billions of dollars of ads. Go buy an Atlanta TV station, by the way. I don't care what they cost. You make money. And we do it again in January
1: 5th. A couple other things. And then I think we should open this up. I think John Fetterman's a really interesting candidate because his profile for people in Pennsylvania is not a socialist, not a Bernie Sanders person. He's someone they think who cares about working class people, who looks like working class people and who can talk to working class people. His health is an issue. And I think that will the outcome of that argument will be determined in a debate. On the other hand, the problems he has are constantly offset by the latest revelations about Dr. Oz. I mean, Mike mentioned selling the FE vitamins, living in New Jersey. This week's is that he injected poisons into hundreds of dogs and cats. Bob's going you know, through the puppy
0: murderer card here. This no. is how these Democrats play
1: ball. He killed 300 puppies you know and what? enjoyed it. You, you, know what? it by you know what? You know what that'll do? It'll well, A lot of people who care about puppies and cats away. And also, it's not just that. It makes him look even weirder. So I think it's possible that Republicans could run the table in the Senate in these races and Democrats could run the table. And I don't think we know yet. But the other thing that I didn't mention, and then I will turn this over to questions, is yesterday Vladimir Putin and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia decided to try to give the Republicans uh, a leg up by cutting oil production by 2 million barrels a day, which will drive gas prices up. Putin's motive is obvious. He's furious at Biden and believes that he would have been able to deal better with the situation with Trump. And the Saudis don't like Biden at all. I mean, he denounced the crown prince after the murder of Adnan Khashoggi, and Biden went over there, tried to mend fences didn't work out very well. So, you may see gas prices continue to inch up. By the way, they were much worse in California because we have the highest gas taxes in the country. And what Newsom has just done is told the refineries to switch out of the summer blend, which is more expensive, right. and into the winter blend, hoping mm-hmm. to bring prices down.
0: I actually let me disagree with you for one sec about that. I don't you think we're not allowed to disagree. Yeah, the the um <laughs> I, I, now I have this image in my head of they're sitting in an edit suite in Philly now taking pictures of puppies, animating them, murderer, murderer, you know, because uh, I think that's going to play bigger than the Herschel Walker thing as far as hurting on versus hurting Herschel. On the OPEC thing, most economists think, and I, I think this is right, one, the OPEC production figures are all phony because they all lie and they never, you know, it, the OPEC coalition is very fractured. So most people think the impact on the cost of gas is going to be pretty small because they agree to stop, then they don't do it. And the supply glut, You know, it, it, oil economics are Hope great. you're right. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's um, even if it, I don't think it matters anymore. People are mad about gas prices, whether they go down or up a buck this week. And by the way, the polling shows are even madder about grocery costs. That's the thing that really drives people because they remember, all right, it used to cost me $82.40 to buy all this stuff. Now it's $117 and there are shortages. So we're seeing. It's not enough to affect Biden. He's already in big trouble, I think.
1: Why don't we talk about the center for a minute and then open yes. up the questions.
0: Go ahead. Well, the center, as I think you're all pretty well acquainted with it, we, we try to inspire kids to go into politics. We don't do the mushy stuff or we agree on policy. No, no, we think you should fight over policy. But the fight ought to have a common set of facts and a respectful argument. The joke I always use is, you know, I'm from Michigan. I'm from Detroit. And we look forward to the Michigan-Ohio football game every year. But afterward, we don't, if we lose, we don't march down, burn the stadium and murder everybody in the, you know, in Ohio. It's kind of bad for football. So we think it, it ought to be a fight, but a fair fight on common facts. So we we try to talk a lot about how you set up the incentives for that in politics, and we try to help kids go get involved in politics to either get practical experience. We send kids out to the Iowa caucus every presidential cycle so they don't starve and freeze to death. We pay them substance wages, but they get a month working on a real campaign, and they build a network that can help them actually get a job in practical politics down the road. And here, and Art Auerbach, one of our professors, deserves particularly high praise for this, we have a pretty muscular internship program to go put them into government and see how it really works. So we're in the practical politics, common set of facts, fight fake news, public services, worthy business. And uh, we really appreciate the support and the help we get from a lot of the parents who are involved. We raise some of our own money to fund things like Iowa in concert with the university. And uh, I'm on the board of the university of Chicago Institute of Politics and Bob and I have both been fellows at the Harvard IOP. So we have a pretty good idea of how these things work. And we're really proud at the center here. We punch above our weight, budget versus impact.
1: Yeah, we do more with fewer resources than anybody our counterparts do. And beyond what Mike talked about, we do programming like this all the time. It's not just on campus. It's zoomed out. It's on Facebook. It reaches thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of people. We have fellows, people who come from the world of politics and spend anywhere from five to 10 weeks teaching a study group, getting involved with students. And we try to keep those groups small so that students can actually get to know someone. I mean, I've had a student say, you know, I never thought when I came to college that I'd really get to know someone like Barbara Boxer and be able to phone her and ask her for advice. So we do that. Uh, we run annual conferences. We'll have a big one, November 17th, our Warsaw Conference on Practical Politics. And we'll talk about who was right and who was wrong, Mike or me, about what was going to happen in the midterms. And, and we got carpools coming, coming in. To that. I have to say well, that Mike, so bet that'll bet be me, fun. Bet me in 2020. The Biden wouldn't make it to the Iowa. He always crisis. brings this up. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a pretty dumb bet
0: <laughs> yeah. to a year from now. And Bob thought the Democrats would win the Senate. <laughs> so we're, we'll be going back and forth forever, but Carville, we're bringing in a lot of big, real political people. Uh, it's going to be on. So, and in person. So uh, commies here, you can surround him about your VIP. It'll be a to town
1: that. and gown on November 17th. If any of right. you want to come, and then we'll have a big climate conference, uh, which we do every year in the spring. And I told them when this was first proposed that I had no interest in a, in a conference that said the seas are rising and the forests are burning and the hurricanes are happening because we know that what I want the conferences to focus on and they do is what can we practically do about this? And we do some innovative panels like bring in private sector leaders to talk about how the private sector can have an impact on climate. Bring in Republicans who say, here's a Republican way to deal with the climate problem. Anyway, that's our sales pitch. Now we're ready to take questions. And just anybody who has one, come to the mic.
0: Yeah, did we miss anything on the sales pitch, Tommy? We do have a high dollar program. If you want to give a little money, I'll be around afterward. Hi. Do either of you see a way that the president, if he decides to run for re-election, a scenario in which he could get rid of the vice president? And it's a two-part. And the secondly is, who's a Democrat we've not heard of who could... Get the nomination and maybe get some traction. Well, here's Bob's plot to take out Kamala Harris. So hi, everybody on Zoom and Facebook. No, I'm 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 kidding. So Kamala Harris can take Kamala Harris out of running politically, should she want to, which would be a world first for a vice president to feel that way, but that's part of the job for VP. Do what's right politically. There's a perception that she's a drag on the ticket. I don't think she's Biden's biggest problem. You know, the vice president is always the Ed McMahon. You don't fix the Tonight Show if it had a ratings bump by doing something about Ed McMahon. It would be a Johnny problem. So, but yeah, it it is possible. He's the president. He could make a change. Very hard to do. I think the bigger question, apparently it's in the press leaked through Al Sharpton's political world that he is going to run again or he wants to, which I believe is true. All presidents want to run again. The question is after the midterms, depending on how the Democrats done. And as the president said, depending on his health, You'll have to make a decision that's what he thinks is best for the country and the Democratic Party. And that's the million dollar question It's less about Kamala Harris.
1: One, I think it would be tough to get rid of Kamala Harris. She has huge support in the African-American community. Jim Clyburn, the South Carolina primary, all the things that we saw play into the process last time would be there. And I think Biden would have to have an extraordinary alternative to be able to pull that off credibly. Number two, I think that if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, we talked about Biden's approval ratings. They're about 10 or 12 points higher than Trump's in most polls. The likelihood of Biden winning is pretty good, no matter who he's running with. Number three, Sherrod Brown, senator from Ohio, I think could be a very effective candidate. And some of the people you've heard of, I mean, Newsom could be an effective candidate. Pete Buttigieg, I love watching him on Fox News. They ask him the gotcha question, and he gets them. So there, there are a number of, of, of possibilities that are out there. Yeah,
0: I'd just toss out Mark Warner, too, from Virginia. There's a little buzz around him. More moderate pro-business Democrat, tough in a primary, but would be a formidable general election candidate. So I had a question about like kind of Biden and I remember reading an article from Politico saying that like only a quarter of of voters actually knew that the bipartisan infrastructure bill was even passed. And I think like the CHIPS Act kind of had similar results. And so I was just wondering how much of kind of low levels of support for Biden and kind of the Democrats going into the election can be attributed to the fact that simply people don't even know about many of the policy wins that Biden has kind of had, and will that kind of have an impact for like the midterm elections?
1: Uh, Some people would fault the White House communication shop, and I won't argue about that at length. I also think that we have a press or ecosystem in which things like that aren't very interesting to the press. What's interesting to the press is Herschel Walker paid for an abortion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is Kamala Harris going to get thrown off the ticket? That kind of stuff is more interesting to the press. I think it will matter in some individual races, some of those things, if candidates advertise about it. And I certainly think if Biden runs for reelection, he'll talk about it. But the bottom line here is that the country's attention is on other issues. The country, you can call it the Inflation Reduction Act, but unless it reduces inflation, you're not going to get a lot out of it. It's actually as John Kerry slipped up and said a couple of weeks ago, the biggest climate legislation that was ever passed in this country or maybe in the world, but they wanted to call it the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think back on, Lyndon Johnson had an extraordinary record of success in passing legislation, maybe even too much of it, but it didn't matter at the end of the day because the Vietnam War and inflation were the big issues. So that's the problem. I mean, Biden's building a great record for history. Question is whether or not it will be a great record at the polls. I'll just echo, I agree with that. That is a great question,
0: because I think the two fundamental political mistakes they made was after they got bipartisan infrastructure done, which is, by the way, the Better Roads and Clean Water and American Jobs Act, instead of, you know, whatever, nobody can spell infrastructure. They immediately pivoted and now, before they went out and harvested and sold that like they could have, they went to, we're going to do Build Back Better. My new chain of chiropractic shops is going to cost $100 trillion. And it was dead on arrival. You never had the votes, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema. On the CHIPS Act, they should have sold that like the Apollo program. We're going to build the future here in Ohio and Missouri and North Carolina with $100,000 a year jobs to make everything from your smartphone to your new self-driving car work. 180 Republicans voted to kill it and send all those jobs to communist China. You ask them why. That's a campaign slogan. You can go on the offense with that. Instead, they, they just string adverbs together in these titles then give it up after a week. It's insane. And it's one reason he's in trouble.
1: Okay, I'm going to try to get through all these questions so Mike and I won't answer. Both of us won't talk unless... We have some disagreement and feel compelled to go ahead. Thank
0: you. Thank you for today's session as well. To your points that you're making about what the issues are and what they seem to be maybe historically, I want to know what your thoughts are about the pandemic and a possible pandemic bump. I would think being in healthcare, that Biden and the Democrats would be screaming that they solved the pandemic and everyone's getting their Omicron booster and we've done really well, yet that doesn't seem to be at all the uh, the conversation. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I have
1: two sentences. One, everyone is not getting their Omicron booster. They're not. And number two, in this Monmouth poll recently, I think COVID and the COVID crisis or the COVID problem was down at the bottom of the list of concerns people had, it was like number 22. The pandemic is psychologically over before it's biologically over, as you know. And I think Biden and the Democrats understand that's not top of mind, number one, for people. And number two, to go out and say we solved this and then have a big outbreak would be a real problem.
0: They tried that last July 4th and it was a disaster. So now they're like, "Eh, too
1: scary to try it again. Thank you. Thanks. Question about uh, political donors. So the recent democratic legislation, part of one of the provisions of that proposed provisions was to get rid of something called the carried interest rule, which is a rule that allows billionaire hedge fund managers to pay a lower tax rate than I do. And the press reports were that Kirsten Cinema essentially killed that provision. It's a provision that is going to benefit less than one percent of her constituents. My question is: Are the politicians really in the pocket of the big donors? If you want me to explain Kirsten Cinema, <laughs> uh, give me several weeks to think about it, and I might come up with one or two observations. I mean, she did kill this single-handedly. Joe Manchin was for it, was ready to support it, and it's an outrage where. These folks are allowed to treat these huge bonuses they get as if they were dividends from stocks, capital gains, instead of being ordinary income.
0: I'm not a fan of carried interest because I think it is one of the inequities of the tax code, but it's not quite uh, just in the interest of I. So it allows them for huge investment gains to take that money at a lower tax rate. And there, it's not like just for billionaire heads, it's for any investor at a high level. And that investment is important. I think it ought to be taxed because it can be abused. But it's not, I would argue with the premise that there's a secret room where a billionaire hedge fund guy in a top hat hands either party, because they both take the same money, a bunch of money, and then there's a wink and a handshake and all right, you're never going to pay taxes again. It's not that transactional.
1: I I think there There is a lot of Republicans. I think there is that kind of room, by the way. And I think now you're hearing Mike's residual Republican roots. Well, so,
0: no, look, <laughs> free enterprise guy. And it's a more complicated issue than that. It, it's not bribery. I mean, it, the problem is if you, if you look at every political contribution as bribery, then it's a very broad paintbrush. Should the teachers union be able to decide who wins California primaries? And then should they choose school boards who negotiate their contracts with them with their money? Cause they do today, you know, so you can take that exchange theory through all the politics and both sides, uh, so I, 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 but the point is carried interest is fairly egregious because it's become an abused loophole that said capital investment at a lower tax rate than earned income. There's an argument for it for economic growth.
1: So I noticed that in a lot of cases that a lot of in elections, that there are a lot of factors outside this country and like in like around the world. And right now that there's two, like, I think more major factors
0: besides money and that, its that Ukraine and Afghanistan like how do you guys think
1: that though that that event from a couple from like last year and the event that's currently going on in Ukraine how does that affect the midterms i think afghanistan is faded as an issue for people i think ukraine is an incredibly dangerous situation we don't know where it's going to go in the next 3 or 4 weeks i don't think it's a big issue i am in the election i am distressed To hear more and more Republicans, especially in the House caucus, the House Republican caucus, saying we shouldn't be giving any money or any weapons to Ukraine. I mean, that would be a disaster. That would just hand victory to Vladimir Putin. They don't have enough votes.
0: It's a fringe thing. The real question in Ukraine is the Ukrainians are winning now. The Russian army is imploding, which is great for the Ukrainians, not so great for stability in Europe. So Ukraine could change everything in an hour. The serious people in this field, and I'm an old foreign policy wonk, the Russian army doctrine is a lot more friendly to small nukes than ours is. We used to have thousands of them. We don't really do it anymore. It was how we were planning to stop a big Russian tank invasion, because we knew conventionally 100 Russian divisions would be in Paris in two weeks. So bottom line is, Putin's got generals now pitching, why don't we just torch one village Wipe out 50 Ukrainian tanks with a small nuke, drive the financial markets for the West down by 40%, create a huge panic, and they'll be at the UN negotiating in 48 hours, and we'll get out of this thing. So it could go really bad, really fast.
1: And if that happens, I think there will be escalation that will be very dangerous. We'll be at a tougher, the toughest point we've been at since the Cuban Missile Crisis, if that occurs.
0: Yeah. uh, Graham Allison wrote the definitive history of Cuba. It says we're there right now. Now, I actually don't think there'd be escalation, but I think there'd be a huge financial panic. But Putin would lose the Chinese who are propping him up now. So it's risky for him. But if the Russians start to really implode, and even domestically, we get into a very dangerous place.
1: Um, My question is about the Pennsylvania Senate race, which you both touched on a little bit Ago, but directly directed at um Mr. Murphy, because I know you worked on the Honor Schwarzenegger campaign, mm-hmm. um, and have some experience with celebrity politics like that. And Schwarzenegger's are arguably the most qualified celebrity candidate to run. What is Oz doing wrong? What are unqualified celebrity politicians like Trump and Oz doing wrong? Why are they losing the outsider label to people like Fetterman who are when when Oz has name recognition like that, which is usually what really boosts Celebrity politics.
0: Right. No, a fantastic question. So Trump's a little different. Trump is a prisoner of his psychological appetites. You know, it's all about him and pleasing him and who's mean to him he has to get rid of. Doesn't take the job seriously. He doesn't care about policy. He doesn't want to learn. I have friends who worked in the Trump White House in the foreign policy thing. And they said, the only thing I've seen this both hilarious and made me want to cry was watching Donald Trump look at a map of the world. Couldn't find India, Belgium. You know, he said it was uh, this. Per- Particular person said after two of those meetings, I pulled every string I could to get the hell out of there, and go go to a country where I could a vital American foreign policy country where I could be the left alone ambassador to protect our relationship for the future. Oz's problem is he looks like such a cynical opportunist. He has no real connection to Pennsylvania, other than it's you know close to New Jersey. Fetterman's advantage is he doesn't look like a politician. Now Fetterman's downside is he is a super progressive. You know, that's the fact. And so he is vulnerable to the attacks on television now, particularly on crime, when he ran the parole board. He's hired a few convicted murderers on his campaign staff to make a point. Now, you can argue rehabilitation or not. Each case is different. I get the thing. But that's a weakness politically in a state like Pennsylvania that's still culturally somewhat conservative. Oz's real problem, though, Fetterman at least has a connection to the state. He was a mayor. He's a Pennsylvanian. Oz has no connection to the state. But Oz has one thing going for him. If the election is fundamentally, let's punish the president, like most of these midterms have been for a long, long time, they're willing to not really care about Oz and use him as kind of a blunt instrument to beat on Biden and the Democrats. The more the race focuses on these challengers, the more it's about Oz, the more it's about Herschel Walker, the worse they're going to do. But the magnetic field in these elections is often about the guy on top because it's kind of hard to pin high gas prices, grocery, the fact that the mortgage payment you made a year ago now buys forty percent less house than it does now. Hard to blame Herschel Walker or Oz
1: for that. Okay, we we have very little. Sorry, I went long. We'll try to get through these two. I'm
0: a Georgia voter, so I was just wondering if you what watched- county muskogee okay columbus right. so i was wondering what you guys think like what happens in the 2022 midterms is going to affect what happens in 2024 i'll be very quick i think if and this will cause lines around the block at every shrinks office in the la san francisco new york but trump will say i'm probably going to win and senator walker will be my vice president are going to go bananas so i think walker will get elevated if he
1: wins Yeah. And then Kamala Harris would look really good as a possible vice president. So you guys both talked about like the level of subpar candidates in the election. What do you think it will take for voters to start demanding more qualified candidates and try to start raising that bar again? Well, one, the subpar candidates are largely due to Donald Trump's endorsement. He endorsed them because they're close to him or because in the case of Herschel Walker, he not only repeats the kinds of claims that Trump wants to make about a stolen election. Trump is enamored of of athletic figures. I think that if Trump is the nominee in 2024, he'll continue to do more of this. You'll see more candidates like that, although we haven't touched on this. The playing field for the Senate in 2024 really favors the Republicans. But I, I think until the fever breaks, uh, until we get a little less polarization in this country, you're going to continue to get candidates like that. I think it's bigger than Trump.
0: He's a huge problem, but we have cultural problems now. Politics reflects culture. I blame Andy Cohen for half this stuff. You know, adults acting like children, throwing things at each other, screaming. Trump's a perfect reality star. He's kind of a fertilizer for that whole thing. And it has taken the middle brow shame out of American politics. For now, it's just a pro wrestling show. As far as what can we do about it? I like ranked choice voting. I like these primaries where you have to build a coalition bigger than your primary base of kooks of the right or left. I like open primaries where it makes the market of choosing a candidate in the primary look more like the marketplace of the general election. The farther we get away from small primaries driven by narrowly minded ideological warriors, be it AOC, you know, or Donald Trump, the better we're going to be for a politics that's less tribal.
1: Yeah, I just... I kind of reject the comparison between AOC and Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, they're, they're but cousins. Trump yeah. is worse, but they're yeah. both Democrats. Yeah, I reject that. But uh, so I want to thank you all for coming. Our next program, which you're entitled to or, or uh, welcome, invited to tune into, will be again on the midterm elections, this time with Stephanie Cutter, who was the deputy campaign manager for Barack Obama, press secretary to Ted Kennedy, and Jessica Milan Patterson who's the California State Republican chairman. That'll be Tuesday at noon. It will be on Zoom. It will be on Facebook. And it will be, uh, actually, it will only be on Zoom and Facebook because they're not coming into campus. But we welcome you to do that. We welcome you to participate in all our other programs. And we thank you for being here today and putting up with us.
0: Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Future. That's Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.